This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! John Templeton. Buy low, sell high. Fear, that's the other guy's problem. And Dr. Miller. Ford Sora. Paul Peter Jones. Peter Lynch. People wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500. Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. My guest for this episode is Mark Yusko. I invited Mark to come on the show for a couple reasons. First, I'm a huge fan of Mark's quarterly letters. He is a student of investing like few I've ever come across, and each letter he writes is just jam-packed with insight. But the second reason I invited Mark to come on was because he recently made waves in saying that he felt we were headed for a stock market crash. And not just a little one, like he calls the 1987 crash, but a real stock market crash. So in this conversation, Mark fleshes out this idea and lays out the parallels between today's market and that of 1929. We also discuss Mark's experience uh, running the endowment portfolios at Notre Dame and the University of North Carolina, in addition to the time he spent with Julian Robertson setting up a fund of hedge funds to take advantage of the talent that Julian identified at Tiger Management. As I mentioned up front, Mark is just a wonderful thinker and a wealth of knowledge. So I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Mark Yusko. Como estas, amigo? Hey, doing well. Thank you for having me, Jesse. <laughs> Great to be with you. I appreciate you coming in and doing this. Um, you are somebody who I feel like a kindred, uh, you know, investment spirit in some sense. You know, I, I read a lot of what you write. And it always seems to resonate with me. So I think probably this whole podcast, I'm going to be subject to some major confirmation bias, but uh, it'll be it'll be a lot of fun in the process. <laughs> no, I, I totally agree with you, and I, I, I feel the same way. You know, I, when I discovered you on on Twitter, I found myself drawn more and more to your blog posts and and your tweets. And you know, I have this line that if if two people always have the same opinion, one is unnecessary. So I don't think we always have the same opinion, but uh, we'll, we'll try to be necessary today. All right. And I'll, be, I'll try and be the unnecessary one and let you do the talking. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just um, interviewed Raul Powell, and uh, he, he makes an interesting point about um, he thinks when you start in the business, the environment that you come into, market environment, really has kind of a formational effect on your investment philosophy and et cetera. I mean, could you tell me about when you started in the industry and what the environment was like and maybe how that was formative in your um, investment process? Look, I, I mean, Raul's a good friend and I, I, I could not agree more that, that that is the case. I mean, look, we're, we're, we're all human animals and, and we are impacted by the environment in, in which we we act, particularly in our younger days when we're more impressionable and, and we don't have any experience to compare to. So, you know, to, the short answer is I, I started my career in investments, you know, the month before 1987. So you could say, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a, a victim of that, so to speak, but not really in the sense that I didn't know enough to know. And also I was on the bond side. Um, you know, I actually went to school to, to be an architect that lasted one semester. I switched over to engineering that lasted three semesters, and and then I decided what what I really wanted to do instead of what Dad wanted me to do, um, which was I thought I wanted to be a doctor, and I spent you know the rest of my time 
at Notre Dame studying science and biology and chemistry and senior year decided not to go to, to medical school, went to business school instead right out of undergrad, which I actually don't recommend to people, but it worked for me because I needed some accounting and finance and investments. Um, but when I came out in, in 87 into the work world, um, what, I, what I now in hindsight realize, you don't realize it at the time, but what I realize in hindsight is I really think science training is some of the very best training for investing. Because investing really is about hypothesis formation, data gathering, hypothesis testing, reevaluation, reformulation. Um, but I, you know, I kind of grew up from uh, a series of what I call happy accidents. I went to work for an insurance company out of school. Uh, the guy who was doing investments retired, so I, I took over the bond portfolio. I, I hired Dan Fuss before he was famous as an external fixed income manager. We ran the rest of the portfolio internally. Then I went to work for an equity firm run by some professors at Northwestern. And, and here's where, where Raul's exactly right. And the formation happens is, so I work with these guys who are deep value investors. I mean, Bill Breen invented low price to book investing. Gene Fama did not. He turned it upside down, called it book to market, won a Nobel Prize for it. So, you know, Bill's pretty pissed about that. But Bill was the first guy to come out and he was using the VAX computer. This was pre-PCs. hate to date myself, but you know, I came into the work world before there were PCs. In fact, one of my most prized possessions that I unfortunately lost uh, when I left the first firm is I had bought one of the very first PCs from Michael Dell in his dorm room, uh, what was called PCs Limited at the University of Texas. Wow. But it got kind of fun, right? Yeah. Um, should have kept that. But so I went to work for this guy, and he was using the VAX computer at Northwestern after hours to do low price to book screening. So the original factor based investing long before anybody knew what value investing or oh, value investing had been around, but, but low price to book quant investing wasn't. They raised a billion dollars back when a billion was a real number um, back in the late 80s. And, you know, there were five of us and I probably would have stayed there forever, you know, learning how to be a value investor, a quant investor. But I got the call. And I don't know if you're a big sports fan, but I grew up, you know, college football fan. I actually grew up a Husky fan. I know you're in Oregon, but but I was a Husky fan, not a Duck fan. Um, but I I um, I lost my train of thought because I went on down a, a rabbit hole, Jesse. <laughs> That's um, fine. You got the call. Oh no, I got the call from from Notre Dame because right. when Lou Holtz was the coach at Minnesota, he had a lifetime contract uh, unless Notre Dame called. And I kind of had the same thing. I was working with these guys. You know, we had a billion dollars under management. There were five of us. The two old guys kept most of the money, but the younger guys eventually would get some of it. But I wanted to go back to my alma mater. So I went back to Notre Dame and I worked in the endowment business. And again, back to this formation is I thought everything investing was about picking stocks and bonds. And I was just wrong. Most of investing really in terms of the success comes from asset allocation comes from where do you invest stocks, bonds, real estate, commodities, hard assets? How do you invest hedge, unhedged, long bias, short bias? Where do you invest in Japan, in Europe, in the US? And these big asset allocation decisions really drive everything. So I spent five years at Notre Dame learning the endowment model and, and how asset allocation really worked. 
And then I got the big break to come down and, and be the CIO at UNC. I was the number two guy at Notre Dame, always going to be the number two guy, the number one guy still there. He's a great guy, um, done a great job. But I got to come to North Carolina. And the great thing about coming to North Carolina, again, back to the environment, is if you go to an environment where everything works well, you don't learn as much, right? Because everything kind of works and you kind of just fit into one role and you're a, a cog in a machine and everything's great. When you come to a place that's completely busted, I mean, North Carolina's portfolio was totally busted. They were stocks, bonds, and cash. They were trying to time the market with a volunteer board. They had terrible performance. And they asked me to come in, you know, by myself and build a team and and take them so they could compete with Duke every year, not in basketball and football, but in investing. And so you learn so much more when you're doing it by yourself. And so I reached out to a lot of mentors, you know, Jack Meyer at Harvard and David Swenson at Yale and, and people I respected in the business, Harry Turner out of Stanford. And and I picked up bits and pieces and I in, in, integrated those into our process at UNC and and really took that that value bias. So I, I am totally biased. I'm, I'm a value guy deep in my soul that comes from those formative years. Back to your question that I probably should have just given you a short answer, but I, I don't do short very well. Um, no, this is great. And and I think, you know, the margin of safety concept either immediately appeals to you or, or doesn't. And, um, you know, so I and I'm and I'm the same way. So I totally get it. Well, no, and, and that's really important. You know, I, I wrote about this recently. You know, I write these overly long quarterly letters. People yell at me, especially my wife. Um, but I like them because that's, it's how I think. I mean, I sit down for a couple weekends, a quarter, and I write these things. And what I do is I take a great investor. And so I've done one on Soros. I've done one on Robertson. I've done one on A.W. Jones. But I did this one on Seth Klarman at Baupost <clears throat> called The Value of Value. And I really dug into this idea of margin of safety and value investing. And to, to one of his points, it is a genetic thing. It either appeals to you or it doesn't, right? You can either buy Tesla at the ridiculously silly valuation that it is today, or you can't, right? It's just, it, it, you just physically can't do it because it's, it's so incredibly overvalued. So... If, if value and margin of safety matter to you, you're constantly buying when you're being ridiculed because everyone else is selling. And then you're selling just as everybody is starting to buy and the party's just getting started. So you're that, you know, you're that terrible, boring guy who shows up at the party to help the host you know, set up and then you're leaving early to go to bed because you're tired you know, when everyone else is just getting drunk. Right. It's it's no fun. You're always on the outside looking in at the party. And, you know, it, it's it's um, it's interesting to me. I'm, I, I'm the same way. I always have been. And uh, for me, I look at guy. I mean, there there are actually guys and, and I'm sure you can you, you know, a few of them who can do both, who can who are good at margin of safety, but can also ride trends and play momentum. Oh, and that's, so true. I mean, it's, it's so difficult to do both. I mean, I think when you are a margin of safety value guy, that your biggest challenge is trying to ride, ride the trend. No, look, I, I am trying and trying and trying to get better. And I actually am better um, today than I used to be um, 10 years ago, 13, 14 years ago when I, cause I, you know, I stayed at North Carolina for seven years, 90, uh, um, 
2008 to 2004, and then I formed Morgan Creek in 04. So we just had our, actually today, actually, interestingly, is our 13-year anniversary. Um, so hey, wow. kind of cool. Congrats. Um, thank you. And uh, I didn't realize that today is the day. So, um, you know, I was very lucky. When I was leaving North Carolina, um, you know, I had gotten to know Julian Robertson, you know, the big cat at, at Tiger, um, because we had a lot of money with him, and he's a Carolina grad, and and uh, we had some great experiences. But I, when I decided to leave North Carolina, I got an email saying, say it ain't so, you know, like Shoeless Joe Jackson, Julian. And I joke, I, I, it's not a joke, actually. I don't get a lot of emails from billionaires. In fact, at that time, that was my first one. And so I said, all right, I'll go, I'll go see Julian. And um, so I got on a plane, I went to New York, and I really thought I was going to get, and get back to Oregon, I thought I was going to get my Nike shoe deal. Right. You know, the coach at North Carolina or Notre Dame or any place else doesn't make a lot of money from the school. They make money from their Nike shoe deal and TV and all this other stuff. And, and I thought Julian was going to say, look, Mark, I know we don't pay you enough, but hey, we can work out something and, and get you some money to, to keep you around. And instead, I walked in his office. He, he came up, he put his arm around me and said, I'm surprised you lasted this long. I like you. I want to work together. I'm like, I'll hit that bid. So he helped us form Morgan Creek. He put in some seed capital for a while. He owned a piece of us. Uh, and then when his son uh, graduated from business school and wanted to come into the business, we did a swap and I kind of gave him the tiger name back and he gave me my equity back so that his son could run the fund of funds business inside tiger. Um, but Julian's been a friend and mentor for all these years. And, and Julian is one of these rare people who deep at his core, he's a value guy, but I've, I've had the fortune, good fortune in my career to put money with just about every amazing hedge fund manager that's come out of Julian's shop. You know, we were first money into firms like Maverick and Tiger Global and Lone Pine and others over the years. And so I've met all these guys, gotten to know them. And, and, I, and I keep these notebooks of, of interviews that I've done with them over the years. And I probably talked to 30 plus guys and I asked him all the same questions. I said, what made Julian such a great investor? Because I think he's actually the greatest identifier, trainer, backer of talent our business has ever seen. But, but I asked him, what, what made him such a great investor? Because he actually has one of the greatest track records also. And without fail, they all talk about he had an uncanny ability to double up. He never doubled down, right? He would cut his losses, live to fight another day. But when he was running, he would double up into the trend. So few people can do that well. And I said, I'm trying to get better at it, but I think it's it's what differentiates the great investors from good investors. Interesting. You know, well, and you make two, two great points. First of all, Julian's one of my heroes. And I think that's the first thing I read of yours was your, your – uh, your annual report where you wrote about your experience. Oh, my letter on Julian. Julian. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Was, the, the big cats. Yeah. It was all, it was all about, um, you know, the big cats, a bear. Oh my. Um, yeah. And not only was he, you know, phenomenal investor. And one of the reasons why he was a hero of mine is long, short equity. You know, it's just right up my alley. It's, you know, value, value based. And, and, but, but you make an awesome point because uh, one of the big challenges of a value investor is you know, getting sucked into a value trap. You see a lot of value investors double down on losers. Yep. And so to be able to have a value discipline but avoid those, that, that uh, clear 
trap, which is the, the is uh, is critical to success. So critical. Well, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. It's you know, you and I, you know, kind of met through Twitter, and and Twitter is really interesting because it's it's populated by both fundamental investors, you know, like myself, and day traders, like lots of other smart people I've met, and it's that that ability to combine some of the great characteristics of trading, which is cut your losers and let your winners run, with fundamental investing, which is, no, wait, Seth says, hey, or Warren Buffett says, hey, if I bought something at 10 and it goes to five, I need to buy more. Well, sometimes that's true, and sometimes it's not. And it all depends on, did you do the analysis right? Was your margin of safety high enough? And and did the world not change? Because sometimes the world changes and things that appear to be value become value trappy, as you said. Um, you said it more eloquently than I. But I, I think that's a really, really fundamental difference, again, between the great investors and good investors. There are lots of good investors. There are a lot of good traders. They're very few greats. Yeah. Well, and, and you know that from that um, adding that kind of trading perspective to a value approach, I think it was you know uh, Paul Tudor Jones maybe in one of the Market Wizards books says you know when something goes against you, it's always best to get out, and at least you can get a clear head. You're not subject yes. to confirmation bias and all that kind of stuff. And if you want to get back in based on you know, your reevaluation of all the the merits of the the investment idea, then you can get back in. But you know, getting out get, allows you to have a clear head. Oh, which is, so you know, true. And look, Steinhardt talked about this. Another one of my my big heroes uh, in the business. In fact, I'm, I'm overdue to write a letter on him um, about him. But you know, he talked about. You know, he would walk in on a Monday morning and say, all right, team, um, I sold everything. I sent the portfolio to Goldman. They, they bought it all. So we have cash. So all your ideas, they're gone. So start over. And he just said, sometimes you get in a funk and things aren't going your way. And when you're really smart or you have really, really smart people around you, you think you're right. And so you've done all this work on this company, and yet the market is telling you that you're wrong, and you just double down on your emotion and your conviction, and you ride these things into, you know, big-time losers. And, and that's what blows up people's portfolios, is they think they're right, the market's right, and they ride these losing positions down too far. And you know, it, it, there's lots of different aphorisms about it, but, you know, Peter Lynch had a great one, which is, you know, the problem with most investors is they do the opposite of what you should do. What you should do is pick your weeds and let your flowers grow. But most people pick their flowers because they're so afraid of losing the gain that they have, and they water their weeds because they're so sure that they're right. And you got to do the opposite. You got to pick your weeds and let your flowers grow. Yeah, and it goes against you know your human nature uh, to do that. But that's one of the first things you learn, and you actually you're getting at, I think, one of the greatest challenges of being a value investor, which is balancing you know confidence in your own abilities to you know analyze an, an investment opportunity, and um, 
and uh, you know, understand or believe that you're right when the markets may be going the other way, but also balance that with the humility of understanding that there are always things going on that you're not going to be fully aware of, and there's always a possibility you're wrong. Oh, and balancing so that confidence with humility is just such an art, and it's so, it's so incredibly difficult. Oh, no, no, look, I, I mean, you just hit on my favorite word, and you know, again, I know they're my, my Twitter haters who probably won't listen to this podcast, so it doesn't matter, um, <laughs> who, who hate that I do this thing, hashtag edge. And, you know, I talk about keywords or key characteristics that give people edge, and the number one is humility, right? People who don't have humility, I don't think can be successful pretty much at anything. Um, particularly not at investing. Um, you have to have the humility to acknowledge that you could be wrong, that you will be wrong. In fact, if you're a legend, right, if you're Julian or George or, which is, you know, you know you're a legend when you're recognized by a single name. Um, and you're only right 58% of the time. So even those guys are wrong 42. So I would say I aspire to get to 50. But it's Druck, which probably came from Soros, but Druck gets credit for it. Um, it's not whether you're right or wrong. It's how much money you make when you're right and how much money you lose when you're wrong. So all of these things come into that, as you rightly point out, this, this discipline, which is exactly what it is. It's a discipline of being a value investor. And I think the big problem for most people who try to fake it, so to speak, is they'll justify in their mind why... Amazon is a value play because it's trading at you know 168 times and it used to be at a thousand times. Right, it's right. not a value. There's a, it, it's not a value. It's I, I use the example of I said well it's cheaper than it was. I'm like yeah that's like getting pulled over for drunk driving and saying well officer I'm not as drunk as the guys in the back seat. You know someone had to drive. I'm like no no. Um, and that's, that's my big thing about the, the overall market today is people say, oh, it's not, as, it's not as expensive as it was in 2000. Yeah, whatever. So, but back to this value thing, the, the really important thing about value is the discipline to, to buy things with a margin of safety and sell them when they get back to fair value and not mess around with, well, it's only 10% above fair value, or 20% above fair value, or 40% above fair value. And it used to be 300% of fair value. It doesn't matter. Fair value is fair value. And at some point, assets go back to fair value or below. And you got to have that discipline. Yeah, and, and then all the way along that, you know, uh, relative value to whatever, you know, fair value is, or market price relative to fair value, the risk-reward equation is constantly changing. And uh, so, yeah, being being aware of that. You know, so you, the other point you make about uh, Julian is that not only was he a great investor, he saw, um, he was a great investor in talent. Oh. Um, and so it sounds like, you know, you were kind of involved in that process with, with, uh, when, when he was seeding these funds. Is that, is that right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, my, my, most of my career, I have been a, an allocator of capital, a seeder of managers, a, a fund of funds manager, uh, CIO. That, that's most of what I've done. So uh, over the past couple of years, I've been shifting more and more toward direct management. So kind of back to my original roots of, of picking securities uh, rather than picking talent. 
you know, we still pick talent and we still have of hybrid funds where you know, we allocate money to managers and then we run a center book, kind of the way Soros used to do it, uh, and Julian for that matter. In fact, there's this great thing. Julian was, was on uh, uh, TV uh, maybe a year and a half ago, and this very nice young woman got the chance to interview him, and she was all excited. You could tell, you could see her in her face. She was all excited. She says, you know, Mr. Robertson, you know, I've, I've always wanted to ask you, you know, what do you look for in, in a stock? And he says, well, you know, we, we've had some fine young men come through our shop over the years, and I kind of look at what they own, and, and I buy some of that. <laughs> and her face just fell. And she was like, oh, that's it? He says, right. yeah. That, and, and, and that's not what he used to do, but, but today that's what he does, because what he did for so many years is he had this process and it included testing. They put they put through people they put people through four tests: an intelligence test, a collaboration test, um, and a couple other secret tests. And you had to take these tests, and if you scored highly on the test, then you'd be eligible to work at Tiger. And and then he would train these people, and then he would back them as they went out on their own. And and you know it's it's interesting. Part of it is the ability to identify talent, and and he did it. The way I think, you know, Notre Dame football used to be when we were successful back in the 60s, 70s and 80s, which is they didn't go for the highest talent. You know, Julian didn't recruit from Harvard Business School and Wharton Business School and Stanford Business School. He recruited from Keenan Flagler Business School and McIntyre in Virginia and North Carolina. So he looked for people who didn't go to the top tier, but that had done something exemplary in their life. And then when he met them, they had passion. And his biggest thing was that they were competitive. He loved tennis players and golfers and people who were the captains of their sports teams. And, and for him, competition is what this game is all about. So he looked for super competitive people who maybe didn't have all the IQ points that some other people had, but they worked harder and they had more heart. And that's what I think separates the really great, again, the great investors. They're not the the towering intellectuals that sit in the ivory tower. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't very, very, very smart people like, you know, Jim Simons at Renaissance and others who are rocket scientists and have figured out how to how to use that. But the people that I really admire in this business, most of them tend to be not valedictorians of their class, um, but have a, a competitiveness and a, a humility about themselves and a, and a congeniality. The other thing, well, congeniality, but also um, an, a, a personal integrity. I mean, Julian was a man of, of unbelievable integrity. And he would say, never fudge the numbers. Like if you started to BS him in a meeting, he would say, stop, come back tomorrow, go do the work and come back tomorrow. Never fudge the numbers. Just don't make it up. And so, you know, he was an identifier of talent. I did that for a long time in my career. And, and I think it made me a better investor by trafficking with and, and hanging out with, you know, really, really good investors. You know, one of my favorite lines is think of the four people you spend the most time with that's who you'll become. Right, right. And, and I think that's just so valuable. 
what you just discussed because I, I get questions all the time and, and you probably do too from from younger people who want to get into the industry yeah. and uh, you know and I think you just laid out exactly what you know if you want to go work for somebody like Julian you just laid out exactly what what uh, those people should be focusing on so well that's, it's that's that and also and you said it earlier too is you said the market wizards book it's mentorship and what people haven't figured out I don't think enough is that mentorship doesn't have to be one-to-one, right? John Wooden writes about this in his book, Coach, right? That you can have a mentor through a book, right? Pick up a Market Wizards book and read about these people. Read about Julian Robertson. Read about Michael Steinhardt. Read about, you know, Paul Tudor Jones. Read about these guys. That's a form of mentorship, and study them and watch them and, and look what they say on TV and look what they write and, and get Warren Buffett's letters, although I don't, I don't really think Warren Buffett's a great stock picker. I know that's heresy. I just think he's a, geni- <laughs> I just think he's a genius for buying low volatility assets and levering them up with negative cost of capital leverage. He is a genius, don't get me wrong, but this whole folksy thing about being a great stock picker, I don't buy it. Um, you know, Seth Klarman, great stock picker. Julian Robertson, great stock picker. Michael Steinhardt, great stock picker. Paul Tudor Jones, great trend so, picker. Oh, yeah. And, and so aside from, I mean, the Market Wizards books are some of my favorites. I reread and they're just underlined probably half of, you know, half of the yeah, words in there. Words, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what are some of your other favorite books? Because I know just reading your letters that you do a just... Uh, huge amount of reading. So, I mean, what are, what are some of your favorite investment books? Yeah. You know, I, I you're, you're, you are astute and, uh, I, I do like to read about the business. Um, in fact, I don't read enough for pleasure as my wife reminds me all the time, but, but I read so much for the, for the business. My favorite thing to read actually are manager letters. I mean, I absolutely love them. So I love reading Hugh Sloan's letters from, from London on, on particularly on Japan and Asia. Uh, I love reading Jeremy Grantham. Absolutely love it. You know, I love reading, um, well, there's, there's lots of managers out there that write great letters. Um, second thing I love is a couple of people who, who do paid services. Now, they're expensive, but they're worth it. And Raul's one. You just had him on. Um, he's fantastic at, at uh, GMI. Uh, but my favorite guy, actually, and I don't want Raul to hear this, but... Um, so I shouldn't play favorites, but actually he's my favorite. <laughs> but my favorite guy to read, and I can't miss it, is Kirill Sokoloff at 13D. I mean, he would be a fantastic podcast. I mean, Kirill is, he's an amazing guy. I mean, he's a seer. I mean, he literally sees around corners. He wrote a book in 1982 called Inflation's Ending, Are You Ready? You know, when everyone else thought inflation was going to stay in the teens. Um I mean, the guy is just incredible. It's a great story. I mean, he's personal friends with the Dalai Lama. He had adult onset deafness. He got the first cochlear implant. I mean, I love the guy. And he writes a thing called What I Learned This Week Every Week. And uh, that is an amazing thing to read. But in terms of books, probably my favorite investment book of all time, uh, the only way you can get it is uh, through a used bookstore um, online, is called The Dow Jones Averages. And Dow is T-A-O. And it was written by this guy, Bennett Goodspeed. Um, and it basically is a discussion of the melding of investment theory and Chinese philosophy. And it, it basically talks about how most people aren't ever going to be great investors because they only use half their brain. 
They only use the analytical side, the left side of their brain. And you need to be a whole-brained investor. You need to channel the creative side, the right side of your brain, uh, the left-handed side of you, or the more feminine side of you if you're a guy, and, and vice versa. Girls need to use both sides, um, uh, female and male. But um, it, the, the, the preface of the book says, dedicated to those with the guts to trust their gut. And there's all this research about you know, how we have more nerve endings in our stomach than we do in our brain and all this stuff. Gut instinct is real, and women's intuition is real. I mean, women outperform men. It's a whole other conversation for another day, but it's one of the points Bennett makes, and there's lots of research. Terry O'Dean at UCLA has lots of research about it. But people who trust their instinct, and that instinct, you know, Steinhardt says, that supercomputer in your brain that's working all the time, even when you're not paying attention. And if you can channel that, and whether it's through meditation or or any form of quiet time and, and solitude and getting away. I mean, living in Bend, Oregon, living in Chapel Hill, you know, John, Sir John Templeton, I wrote about him. He moved to the Bahamas. You know, getting out of the group think uh, is really important. Um, quickly, another book I love is, is The Great Boom Ahead by Harry Dent. You know, people rail on Harry because some of his other stuff, later books were not as accurate, but The Great Boom Ahead, written in 93, 94, is uncanny. I mean, he predicted the global financial crisis in 2008. In 1994, he predicted that the iPhone would be the primary method of connecting to the World Wide Web. Who even knew what the World Wide Web was in 1994? It hadn't really been invented yet. Um, or actually been popularized, been invented, but hadn't been popularized. So right. that book is, is amazing in understanding S-curves and and how demographics is destiny. And I tweet about this all the time. The killer D's, demographics, debt, and deflation, that guides everything in investing. And if you if you get on the wrong side of those headwinds, it's tough to make money. Well, that is a perfect segue into what I'd like to talk, to, talk about next. But I, the book recommendations are fantastic. I, I have not read either of those. Um, and the, the, as it... Uh, Dow Jones averages sounds like it's right up my alley. Oh yeah, you'll love um, it. No, you will love it. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah for, and that was actually it was something before we get to this next topic. Um, you know, the you know based on the you know what sounds like the premise of that book is. Um, you know, I, I like to play music. For me, that's getting away from the markets, but it's still you know it's it's uh, exercising a different part of my brain and, and yep. whatnot. And I, I make all types of musical. Um, analogies to to the markets and stuff just uh, probably more than anybody wants to hear about but um, what for you I mean I, it was interesting for me to hear about you studying you know or initially want to be an architect engineering yeah. studying science pre-med I mean you know one of the the ideas of this podcast is the greatest investors that I've studied have bring in a lot of other disciplines. It's that art of worldly wisdom that yes. uh, you know Charlie Munger talked about. What for you are some of the? It could be hobby. It can be other another discipline, a science. What for you is kind of one of those areas outside of finance that's had a big impact on your financial um, uh, evolution? I guess. Well, no. I, look, it's a, it's a great point. In fact, another one of my favorite books is is investing the last liberal art. Exactly to your point. And, and I do think that, that worldly wisdom is important and you know, it explains why you're such a great investor, the fact that you got this musical background and you're using both sides of your brain, you've got the creative side. 
<clears throat> going with the analytical side. You know, one of the things that, that has actually helped me, and I'm, I'm going to be in your neck of the woods one state over uh, in a couple weeks uh, up in Idaho going fly fishing, is I love fly fishing. I love the, the time on the water. Um, it's a form of meditation, you know, the, the rhythmic back and forth of the casting. But also fishing is a very great analogy. In fact, I used to write all my letters about fly fishing and investing. In fact, I should probably put them all together and write a book about it that if you think about the art of fly fishing and the process of fly fishing, it's so similar to investing. You know, the water temperature can change from day to day and can move, and the fit, but the fish have a, a traditional pattern that you're trying to, to outwit. You gotta match the hatch, so you gotta have the right process for the right time that goes to value versus growth versus momentum. So there's all these things that, that, that go to. So I, I agree with you that bringing in lots of disciplines. Um, and one of my big things is, is balance equals edge, that you have to be balanced in your life, right? Between family, between friends, between time away from the office, time in the office. Um, and I think sometimes the harder you work, the, least, the less effective you are uh, to a point. And so Absolutely. Yeah. spending time away, and I'm a huge fan of, of this concept of solitude, right? Now, I don't take to as extreme as Raul does where I move to Little Cayman and, you know, there's 140 people on the island. Now he's actually back in Grand Cayman. But, um, you know, being away from the masses and taking time where you're not reading anyone else's opinions. You're not reading anyone else's idea. You're not totally plugged in Twitter, although I am probably overly immersed in Twitter, as my wife would remind me. Um, <laughs> but sometimes just taking a break and you know, I went uh, camping over Fourth of July with my little guy who's six. And for three days in the North Carolina mountains, we didn't have cell phone access. I didn't know there were still places on earth that didn't have cell phone access, but we didn't have it. So I was totally off the grid for three days, and it was amazing. And so now I'm going to have to do that more often. I mean, just be totally off the grid. And I think that replenishing and cleansing, and, and I'll, I'll leave you with one last thing here, which is not what you asked me, but I think it's interesting. When, Because I have older kids, 28 and 26, and then my wife and I had a lull, and then we had another baby unexpectedly at, at late in life, at 48 and 47. And which has been fantastic and he's amazing and it's amazing for us. But in that first year, I had more big ideas, big investing ideas, profitable ideas. I had more big ideas in that first year than I probably had in the previous 10. And I look back on it like, why did that happen? Well, what was happening is I'd go home at six o'clock and my wife would literally hand me the child and say, I'm out, I need a break. And she'd leave for a couple hours and do what she had to do. And, and you know, three-month-old, six-month-old, they don't do very much. They kind of sit there, and we'd sit on the floor together, and two hours would pass. And I felt like I wasn't doing anything, but my brain was working the whole time. And I'd have these aha moments. And that, I think, is something that all of us need more of in our life, is that time to have those aha moments. Yeah, well, you were shocked out of your routine and, yeah. you know, forced to think of things, do things differently, do different things and think of things in, you know, different ways. And so that's just great for the creative process. Um, yep. 
Very, very cool. Um, let's, uh, you mentioned demographics, debt, these other things. I just, and speaking of books, I just finished reading um, Rainbow's End, The Crash oh, of 1929. So awesome. um, you were at the Malden Conference recently, uh, keynote speaker, I believe. Yeah. And you gave a, a, a quote that's gone viral. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You said, I'm telling you yeah. right now, the U.S. is going to have a massive crash. What, yeah. you know, what, um, what are you thinking about in, in, well, in regards to this yeah, stuff? So, so, let's, so let's actually, let, uh, let's get it back to totally being in the proper frame. Okay. Uh, you're, you're, <laughs> no, no, you're right. I mean, you're right. But it, 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 like everything, people hear certain things and they write certain things, but they're not, it's not 100% right. The, the, the intent is right. And what I said was I was paraphrasing Roger Babson. So my last letter, uh, last two letters actually, were about Roger Babson and uh, Ben Graham. And two letters ago, I wrote about Roger Babson. Roger Babson, for people who don't know, was the guy who called the crash in 1929. On September 15th, 1929, he said, I'm telling you again, the same as I told you last year and the year before, there's going to be a crash, and it could be, um, okay, remember the word he used. It, it liked spectacular, but it's not spectacular. Uh, terrific. He said, and it could be terrific. So I was, I was at this speech, and I was saying, look, people didn't believe Babson in 29 because he said it in 27, and the market went up. And then he said it again in 28, and the market went up. And so by 29, they're like, you're an idiot. You're wrong. The market's never going to go down again. Well, not only did it go down, and actually two weeks after he said it, Irving Fisher made the famous quote about the markets have reached a permanently higher plateau. They, they could never go down again. Well, not only did they go down, they went 86% down, and they went way below where they were in 1927. So Babson was right. And... What I was saying was, look, a year ago, I said that, you know, I thought there could be a recession and that the market was due for a correction. And I was saying it again, that here I am a year later saying the same thing. And look, I believe Newton's third law is right. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. You know, Babson spent his whole life obsessed with this idea of, of Newton and gravity and, and trying to reverse the effect of gravity, which he was never able to do. And the reality is gravity rules. And ultimately, there will be a reaction. And I believe that we are at the second high. I mean, these are just facts, right? We're at the second highest valuation in history. The S&P is the second highest valuation in history earnings of the S&P are the same as they were in 2012, yet we're up almost 100%, only because the multiple has nearly doubled, the P.E. ratio. So we're paying more for a dollar of earnings, and people justify that because interest rates are low. Well, are they going to stay low forever? We'll see. But my biggest issue is that just like in 1929, so what I wrote about and my thesis is, if you look at 1928, when Herbert Hoover was elected, okay, he was the second president elected with no experience after William Henry Taft, which didn't work out so well. We had a Republican sweep. You had this roaring 20s, you know, uh, penultimate kind of bubble uh, run up. 
And from November of 28 till September 3rd, 29, the market went up 40, 40%, and peaked at this, this level that no one thought could ever go down, and everyone thought it could only go up. Well, that was the highest value it had ever been in history, and it, and it crashed. And here we are today at the second highest valuation, because the 2000 peak actually was worse than 29, and so now we're second to the, 20, to the 2000 peak. And if you look since Trump was elected, he was our third president elected with no experience. If you look what's happened, we had a Republican sweep. We promised all these things, the same things we promised in 29. We promised to export Mexicans. We promised to cut taxes. We promised to decrease regulation. None of those things, actually, they did export 500,000 Mexicans, but none of the other things actually happened. They actually ended up raising taxes. They actually ended up increasing regulation. And a small slowdown recession in 29 turned into ultimately the Great Depression uh, over the course of the 30s. And the biggest change was Smoot-Hawley, which was you know putting up tariffs and trying to go into a trade war, which we hear rhetoric about all the time. So I just think there are too many similarities to, to 1929. And I think politically, there's a lot of similarities. Economically, there's a lot of similarities. But most of all, demographically, it's exactly the same. And this goes back to the Fourth Turning book, which is another good book. Um, and Neil Howe, who was also at, at the, the Malden Conference, talking about this generation and the demographics of this generation is exactly like the generation in the late 20s in terms of the number of people that are turning 65 and the, the, the dearth of young people between kind of 25 and, and 45. So... I, look, I, I, I think it's it's one man's thesis, and uh, we'll see. I only got a couple months left to uh, to see it play out, but yeah. Uh, well, you know, there's uh, there are some fascinating parallels, and you know, you have you know also said that you f- you just feel like you talked about gut instinct. You feel in your gut, you know, that uh, that we're potentially heading for kind of a Hooverville type of. Uh, experience and uh you know when i was reading the you know the uh, rainbow's end they talk about you know to take advantage of the late 20s rise in the markets there were all kinds of investment trusts created in fact they created so many trust there are more trusts than stocks in in the market yep. and you yep. know you just look at there's more etfs or there's more ET indexes than stocks in the market today and it's just there is nothing new in this world jesse that that is such an important point and no one's talking about it. And the key is the investment trusts were exactly the same thing as ETFs and index funds today. Exactly. And then on top of it, they were levered. And that's exactly what's happening in the market today in two places. One, you've got personal leverage with margin debt at now the all-time record high. And we know that ultimately margin debt peaks at the top of the market. That makes sense. People buy what they wish they would have bought. That's what they do. But the thing that actually is also happening, which happened back in 29, is the corporations are borrowing at record levels. And so the combination, and actually I did the math on this, is if you look at the last five years of money borrowed by corporate America, it's equivalent to the same amount that was borrowed in these investment trust leverage schemes in the five-year period from 25 to 29, inflation adjusted, exactly the same, $2.4 trillion. It's truly Interesting. amazing. 
You know, and that's something that I was trying to kind of quantify in reading the book because, you know, they, they were talking about margin loans essentially getting to about, and I measure margin debt compared to GDP. And so yeah. I think GDP back then was, you know, um, uh, $100 billion or something. And yep. they got up to almost $7 billion in margin loans. So almost 7% of GDP. I think we've gotten close to maybe 3% in just pure margin debt. But you're right. When you look at the leverage corporations are using to, to yes. buy equities, you probably get to this uh, a very similar number. And it's all the buyback stuff, right? Is right. What they did is it's, it's financial engineering to enrich the management team. So they call it shareholder value maximization, SVM, which is the biggest scam well, the second biggest scam ever perpetuated against investment kind. The first was the Tax Act of 86, which had nothing to do with taxes. It had to do with transitioning from defined benefit plans to defined contribution plans so corporations could save a third on their pension liabilities and transfer all the risk to the individuals, which is such a scam and no one talks about it. Um, a time, yeah, that's a topic for another conversation. But, um, you know, look, we're at a a very tenuous spot and you know that that gut instinct and and I'm old enough to have lived through a couple cycles uh, back to Raul's original point that you know you are certainly um, a product of your your environment that you're you're brought up in in the business but 87 wasn't a crash right it was a crash with a rebound and we went on and made new highs for for the next four years until we had the recession in 91. So it wasn't the same as, you know, 99 or 29 to 33. And it certainly wasn't the same as 2000 to 2002. Um, so people say, oh, you know, you're just biased because you came in during the crash. I'm like, no, I came in during the flash crash. I mean, that was portfolio insurance, although I could make an argument that, that ETFs have an element of portfolio insurance to them, too. Um, this low vol, to me, that's the biggest risk in the market is these low vol ETFs, because they only buy stock based on the volatility of the price. Well, as soon as that volatility goes up for any reason, and it could be you know retirees being forced to sell because they turn 70 and a half, it could be because you know growth slows, it could be because it gets someone gets a margin call, but as soon as volatility rises, those same ETFs must sell. They can't think. They're not allowed to think. That's why I call them dumb, right? They're rule-based. Um, so well, I think and, there's and, a lot of systemic risk. Yeah, and those are those low-value ETFs are interesting because they're based on whatever it is, three-year beta or five-year beta. And so there's really no market action that, you know, uh, you know, they're just a whole, a whole ton of, you know, stocks in there. There's, there are emerging markets ETFs that have lower beta than the S&P 500 right now, which is, you know, kind of, kind of silly. Um, and, and, and so you're absolutely right if, you know, uh, but you bring up another structural uh, concern that I have, which is, is not just the low, low volatility, low beta, it's the, the short volatility positions out there and not just oh. the short volatility positions, but the all the volatility targeting that's overlaid on top of short vol. So you have risk parity is probably the most yep. um, popular form of that. And, and that's been, you know, I know uh, that's really difficult to kind of quantify how that works. But even aside from that, there are a lot of insurance companies and whatnot that essentially, you know, uh, 
scale their equity exposure based on, on, on realized volatility. And so there's just so much to me in that, in that structural side of the market, too, that creates risk that we've never seen before um, that, that's concerning as well. So. And that's really the, the more appropriate comparison to portfolio insurance is this, this short VIX and this put selling. You know, it's been sold as free money. You've got pension funds doing it. You know, have no business risking their capital that way. People think it's riskless. It's far from riskless. Um, you know, when you have something like VXX, 97% of its shares are sold short, that ends badly. There's no way that doesn't end badly. Now, I can't tell you when. It's like the CAPE ratio, right? I, I can tell you mathematical certainty that 10 years from now, we're going to look back and say, geez, it was stupid to buy stocks at a CAPE of you know, high 20s. We're, we're definitely going to say that 10 years from now. But I don't know if we're going to say that 10 months from now or 10 days from now. But I know we're going to say it in 10 years. And the same thing's true of this of these volatility structures is they will crack. And when they crack, they will unwind in a hurry. And that's one of my favorite hashtags is hashtag risk happens fast. Um, when this goes, when this reaction finally occurs, the action of you know the volatility skew, the ETF and, and indexation and the move to passive, even though it's not passive, another topic for another day. Um, it's you know cleverly disguised active. Uh, then you got the risk parity. Um, you got the smart beta, which is, doesn't exist. It's an oxymoron. Beta is dumb by definition. Um, alpha is smart. So you got all these things, and they've led to a misallocation of capital. They've led to a complacency and and uh, a, a reduction in a perception of risk. And what we know, right, from 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 economic theory, is that the absence of something, Hyman Minsky, ultimately creates its presence. So the longer we go without a recession, the worse the recession is going to be. The longer we go without a reversion in the mean and volatility, the worse that reversion is going to be. The longer we go with leveraging up corporations, the deleveraging, the worse the deleveraging is going to be. So you've started to see people like Ray Dalio, you know, start to say, yeah, maybe I shouldn't be so quite. And then actually, I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> so he's left this, you know, giant, you know, house of cards that he's put together with this this uh, risk parity. Uh, strategy, and I have a friend who calls it risk disparity. That's about to happen. So, uh, I think there's a lot of risk out there. Well, there, it's really it's funny. There was a, an article a few months ago. I, said, I I took a screenshot of the chart that Bloomberg did, and it was about risk parity and how it can potentially contribute to volatility. And and on the chart, um, they they uh, misspelled risk parity as risk party. <laughs> so I thought <laughs> that's perfect. Oh, these that's guys so are taking great. they're taking advantage of the risk party. But you know what happens when the risk party ends? Oh, the um, hangover, baby. So, and yeah. you know it's funny. I got in an argument with somebody the other day on Twitter on this that, you know, why do you think there has to be a hangover after the party? I'm like, because there is. There always is. I mean, you can't you can't get rid of the business cycle. You can't get rid of risk. Your risk is like energy. You can change its form, but you can't create or destroy it, right? Heat energy can become light energy. You can't take risk away. You can move it around. You can take single stock risk and make it portfolio risk, or you can take you know, currency risk and make it derivative risk, but, but you can't 
get rid of risk. And the Fed has not abolished the business cycle. Companies are going to go bankrupt. I don't know when, but they're going to. This debt has to be paid back at the corporate level. Now, the government debt and, and all this talk about the central banks and the treasuries doing a debt jubilee, yeah, if you get to 100%, as, as looks like the Bank of Japan might get there, you might have a shot at doing that. Um, but if, if they only own 50% of the bonds and you cancel 50%, well, what happens to the other 50%? So there's all this talk about how we can just magically make it go away and the central banks can just print new money. Look, if it were as simple as printing money to create wealth, wouldn't every country in the world be doing that every day? A lot Wouldn't of them seem to be, be trying. Rich? Well, they <laughs> yeah. are trying, and that's, well, that's I think why the difference, there's so the much di- Yeah, the difference between what you, know, you and I believe and what maybe central banks believe and, and uh, what a lot of investors believe today is that the Fed has, has not um, you know, banished the business cycle. They've pulled demand forward from the future, which means yes. there's less economic demand going forward. But they've also, uh, and you know, that's kind of a common thing that I think a lot of people do, do believe and, and maybe in understanding secular stagnation is, you know, when you pull demand forward for years and years and years, you know, you're, you're left with not a lot of demand. And, uh, right. but, but also the same, by the same token, I think, um, you know, Chris Cole has talked about this is you suppress volatility today. You don't, you don't banish volatility. You're just pushing that volatility into the future. And so, you exactly, know, like you right. said, the longer that this goes on, the more, you know, volatility is being pushed in the future, the more extreme that volatility is going to be when it finally finally gets here so it's axiomatic it's just math that's another one of my my hashtags just math and it, it, it's just it it can't not be right it, it it's one of those things where um you know my all-time favorite line of all lines in investing from sir john templeton the four most dangerous words in investing it's different this time it's never different this time there's nothing new in this world you know, every story you can go back to, you know, hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, every, you know, quote from all the leadership gurus comes from people like Socrates and Seneca the Younger. So there's just nothing new in this world. I mean, human beings are pretty simple animals and, and they do the same things over and over again and they expect different results. And, you know, that just doesn't work out that well. Well, and I think you started this conversation by by talking about you know physics and Newton and you know when you push something so far in one direction it's got to come back you know it's just the way the way the physics works and, and it works in the market as well. Yep, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Absolutely, that is fact. That is law, right? It's called the Newton's third law. It's not called <laughs> Newton's third good idea or Newton's third you know thought. It's a law, and. You know, we think these are ideas physics. when they come to the markets, right? They're right. not laws, but no, in fact they are. Everybody believes they're smarter and that they'll get out first, right? They'll, they'll get out before everybody else and they can stay at the party right until the cops come. They won't get arrested. Look, I wish them all well, but I sleep. You know, someone asked me in, a, in an interview a number of years ago, you know, what keeps you up at night? I said, I actually sleep really, really well. So well, how can that be? There's all this stuff, all this risk and all these things. Like, yeah, but I don't expose myself to those risks and I don't lever myself up into those risks. And, and so my, my return stream historically is, is kind of boring. 
day to day, month to month, year to year, but over the long term, compound better because you avoid the downside. And you know, I, I'll leave with this one funny story that you know was was uh, talking to uh, someone who was an investor in one of our funds a number of years ago in 2011. I remember 2011 was a choppy year; the market was flat and. He says, you know, I'm, I'm out. You know, you just haven't made any money. I said, what are you talking about? You know, we're flat this year, but we were up 9%. Uh, we were up yeah, 9% last year and up 15% the year before. And he says, yeah, but last year the market was up 15 and the year before that was up 26. And I said, right, but what about the year before that? He says, well, yeah, fine. The market was down 35 and, and you were only down 20. I said, well, let's just do the math together, right? <laughs> yeah. Down 20 up 15, up nine, uh, flat. I got 99 cents. You know, down 35, up 26, up 15, flat. Okay, you kicked my ass the last two years, but you got 94 cents. I said, 99 is better than 94. He says, no, it's not. And I said, okay, I'll bite. Why not? He says, well, you know, you didn't make the 2008 adjustment. I said, what's the 2008 adjustment? He says, well, I don't count 2008 because that was an anomaly and that'll never happen again. I'm like, holy crap. Okay, take all your money, go far away, <laughs> and lose it in, in, in you know, the comfort of your own home. Because if you believe that bad things never happen, and when they do, they don't count, then yeah, my, my style, this value style, is just not going to be for you. So. Well, that's interesting. I think it was uh, Jeff Gunlack recently said, as soon as you hear somebody say never, it's about to happen. Yeah, so absolutely never, never is one of those words to pay attention to. Um, absolutely. Hey, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Where can people keep up with you and your, your thoughts? Yeah. So a couple things. And one, uh, this was so much fun. I, I haven't enjoyed a conversation like this in a very long time. So thanks for, for having me on and, and for being such a great uh, host and moderator. Great questions. A um, couple things. I mean, one, you can follow me on Twitter at Mark Yusko, M-A-R-K-Y-U-S-K-O. Uh, we've got a website, which is morgancreekcap.com, and that's got downloads of all of our manager letter or my you know, uh, quarterly letters and, and uh, media appearances. And then, uh, you know, I'm out and about uh, on TV every now and then. Um, and uh, otherwise... Uh, feel free to, to reach out and find me through email as well. Although I'm not very good at email. I'm much better at Twitter. Yeah. Well, um, th- yeah, this has been a blast. And, and uh, I encourage everybody to check out Mark's um, letters. Uh, they are long, but they're worth your time. Uh, I, I get something out of each one of those. So thank you very much, Mark. I've really enjoyed this and uh, appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Jesse. I look forward to doing it again sometime. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors in the Art of Worldly Wisdom. Mark and I covered a ton of ground in this episode, and he gave a bunch of wonderful recommendations in terms of reading material. So there are a ton of links, notes, charts, videos, etc. at thefelderreport.com related to our conversation. In fact, for every episode, I put up a blog post at thefelderreport.com with all of this types of material supporting the conversation that uh, we just had. So um, as always, I want to thank you all for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high. Man, look.
abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, a man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss. <laughs> <laughs>